The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Today, I want you to think of a genius. Get a person in your mind, historical or contemporary, someone who really deserves the title. Got someone? Okay, so what makes this person a genius? Are they smart? Talented? Were they born that way? Did they work hard? I want you to hold on to this thought, this person, throughout the episode. We're going to come back to it. I'm talking today with Dr. Craig Wright. He teaches a very popular course on genius at Yale. Craig spent decades studying the phenomenon, and he's just published a new book, The Hidden Habits of Genius. Craig challenges what we've come to believe about truly exceptional people. He can tell us a lot about what genius really is and how we can cultivate it in ourselves and in others. Here's Craig. What is genius? Well, people for centuries, indeed millennia, have been have been trying to come up with an answer for that. But strangely, no one does. Everybody uses the word, but no one ever defines it. But in an odd way, it can be reduced down to a simple mathematical equation. Genius equals significance times number of people influenced times duration. Genius is impact on society. It's not celebrity. It's not one off flash in the pan of that uh, is there for a very short period of time in culture and then moves on. It's something that impacts the lives and changes the lives of many people over a long period of time. Well, I have to say, Craig, I have spent the past 15 years writing about technology for magazines like Wired and Fortune and right, Business yeah. Week. Uh-huh. And In Silicon Valley, genius is the best compliment you could receive. But it also seems like it's polarizing. Like the very fact of the existence of a genius means that everybody else is not a genius. And therefore, everybody else is not capable of grand achievement. Can genius be cultivated? Is genius an absolute or is it a relative concept? I would emphatically say that it is relative. It is relative to time, and it is relative to place, and it is relative to people and culture within that particular place. This is not an absolute. Genius is whatever society wants to make it at any particular point in time. And by society, we mean each individual. You, you Jesse, can have your particular heroes, your particular geniuses. I like to think of this in terms of people such as, say, Mozart, who is very much thought of as a genius and a cultural icon in Western culture cultural opera houses and things such as that. But he's not that well known, say, in Nigeria, where somebody like Felakuti, uh, who developed, discovered Afrobeat music, was a national hero. We could go on and on with that. I've learned a great deal from my students about the American Indians and, and their whole approach to what is genius in that particular culture, where society and women in particular are held in high esteem. Well, I also just wanted your opinion on the way that society is sometimes particularly certain domains, use genius as a term to lock people out of being able to achieve. Okay, so it's the inequality issue here. Um, and it's ironic with genius because um, the whole very notion of genius is 
predicated on an inequality that some people have the capacity for changing. Now, we were talking about that before, having a greater impact on society than other people. And I think that's true, that some people have throughout history and do today and will tomorrow make more important changes in society. There will be individuals or maybe teams of individuals that come up with a vaccine for the COVID virus, and that will be profoundly impactful. The rest of us will not be doing that. These will be the game changers, and not everybody can be a game changer. But what we have to remember, we are not going to be able to maximize genius, the capacity to change culture for the better, unless we enfranchise everybody on an equal footing. And that means giving everybody equal opportunity in terms of education, in terms of encouragement, in terms of materials um, at their disposal to be all that they can be. Um, so that that's one of the very interesting uh, dilemmas, uh, conundra, I suppose, um, that we must factor in when we talk about genius. Well, so I want to hit on a couple of basic tenets that we sort of take for granted around genius, because I kind of want you to decode them a little for us. One is, what's the relationship between IQ and genius? I'm going to say a couple of things today would probably get me thrown out of the academy, but here are some things that are hugely overrated. IQ, mentors, Ivy League education, and parents. Craig, you, you do teach at Yale here. So. I, I do, I do, but, uh, but uh, I have tenure, and that's the great virtue of tenure. <laughs> and I'm getting older, and you reach a statute of limitations with regard to proper behavior and age, and you can just make a fool of yourself, and nobody's really looking at you anyway, so who cares? So let's, let's, let's talk about this, IQ. I think IQ is, is, is really very much overrated because it is a standardized test that you take, and well, it's such a small part of the human experience that it's it's not particularly relevant. I tend to uh, like to think of this in terms of what uh, Howard Gardner called multiple intelligence. What the heck does it mean to be smart? There's all kinds of smart in this world, and people such as Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi, I have no idea what they would have scored on an IQ test, but they certainly had particular kinds of skills that could never have been measured on a standardized IQ test. The same for Darwin, the same for Mozart, etc., etc., etc. So it does open up the question, well then, how can you identify genius? You can't guarantee it. Um, and I will say that there are a lot of hidden habits of genius, which is the title of my book. There are a lot of components in this brew. And we could cite curiosity. We could cite passion. We could cite tolerance for risk. We could cite outsider status, being comfortable with being a rebel. But we can't guarantee where this is going to go. So what do we do with this? How can we uh, uh, deal with it? How can we uh, enable ourselves or how can we encourage our children? And indeed, in my case now with seven grandchildren, four children, seven grandchildren, how can we encourage them to be all that they can be, perhaps be geniuses? Well, we can't guarantee that this is going to happen, but we can load the dice in their favor. There is a sense that those who will achieve in the world will do it early. And it's really um, sort of driven home by the emergence of prodigies, um, like the, you know, the eight-year-old violin player or the 15-year-old gymnast. How do we understand prodigies in relation to genius? I think a misconception here, the thing we all got wrong, prodigy 
and geniuses do not equate. They are two separate things. Many, many prodigies, the overwhelming majority of prodigies, never become geniuses. And the majority of geniuses were never prodigies. Um, what happens with this, and I watch this particularly because my initial training was a classical pianist at the Eastman School of Music. I wanted to be the next Van Cliburn. I had very long fingers. Turned out I had no musical talent whatsoever and ended up doing some very different sorts of things in life. But I went through that conservatory watching all these prodigies. And then I look back and say, what happened to all of those people? And I've studied composers, young composers, fledgling composers. There are these young stars that seem to be extremely bright, a very high, uh, high score or absolute whiz-bang violinists or whiz-bang chess players. And they don't become geniuses because they cannot create. They cannot morph over into the zone of the creative life. They have been raised in a hothouse where, in effect, so many of the things that make genius, they have not been exposed to. They have, in, in an odd way, been precluded from becoming geniuses through, I think, the wrong kind of education. I think the distinction here between mastery in a field and the creation of something new is incredibly critical. How do we unlock creativity? We always say unlock creativity as if it's something that exists in all of us and it's just about getting to it. First of all, is that true? Well, it's an interesting question. I think the answer to that is probably, I mean, I, I've never been asked that question, um, <laughs> which, is, which is a bit silly. A lot of this is genetic. I don't think everybody is born with the same uh, degree of creative expression, ability to create, and it's simply if we find the, the right key, we can unlock that door to creativity. I think it's probably more complex uh, than that. How about the whole debate around nature versus nurture. I understand that what you're saying is that nature accounts for a lot of this, but all of it? No, no, no. Your point's well taken. You know, one of the points of the book is contrarians are good. We need contrarians. If you're a contrarian thinker as you are here today, Jesse, then then you're on the path to genius. <laughs> but but uh, I, I, so I appreciate your pushback. So let's bring it down to the modern day. I teach this class at Yale, Exploring the Nature of Genius. When I do this live, and we're not doing it online as I'm doing presently at the moment, what I traditionally would do is have this group, and it could be 120 students in, in a particular given year, have them all stand up in the first uh, session of the class and chant together. Now, chant with me, chant with me, chant with me. There is no answer. There is no answer. There is no answer. They have no idea what they're doing, but this is weird and semi-amusing. And, and um, off we go. Then I tell them, well, all right, so what's the question? Is it nature or nurture? <laughs> and to that, there really is no answer. Although people for 150 years now have been trying to, to figure this out. We're going to take a quick break. After the pause, we'll hear how one of Craig's most unique students, really, he's an Olympian, how he sees the nature versus nurture question. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Craig Wright, author of The Hidden Habits of Genius. You know, when it comes to the nature versus nurture debate, he had one student with a very interesting perspective. A year ago, I had in my class a very interesting young man. Um, and he caught my attention because he was, was on the online version of the course. But every time he was beaming in, he was in a cab going somewhere. But he had his phone out there and he was, he was participating in the discussion. It turned out that that person was the number one ranked American figure skater, Nathan Chen. He's an Olympic medal winner. He's also a very good student. And after the course was over, I talked with him afterwards and asked him some questions about this. And with your permission, I'm just going to read a little bit out of the book here about Nathan Chen, U.S. number one ranked figure skater, talking about the issue of nature versus nurture. In my opinion, says Nathan, there are genetic factors at work in this domain. Height, bodily proportions, general strength, and capacity to quickly improve muscle memory. But there are, in addition, a number of genetic factors you can't really see and are more difficult to quantify. Among these are the ability to be calm in the face of stress and the ability to internally strategize and course correct during a competition. So for me, I would say it's 80% nature. Wow. That's, uh, that's more than the psychologists even say. I think they come up with about 65% depending on a particular field of enterprise. Then Nathan goes on to say, the gold medal athletes, well, they get to an accumulated 100%, 80% nurture, and now he factors in gene and genes and luck, and 20% nature. For those athletes who are naturally at 60%, nature, they must maximize the 20% work in order to even think about competing at the top level as 90% or 100% athletes. Therefore, it's difficult to say which is more important, nature or nurture. They both have their importance, but at the end of the day, no matter how hard you train in your sport, without that genetic capacity, it will be nearly impossible to be the best. So your student attributes a lot to genetics, and then he talks about luck. How much of a role does luck play in all of this? It surely plays some, both bad and good. And it's really true. If you look back over the history of these geniuses, whether it's, you know, whether it's Mozart, whether it's, it's Leonardo da Vinci, whether it's, it's, it's Picasso, Michelangelo, uh, Isaac Newton, uh, Albert Einstein, they all come from middle class or upper middle class families. They don't come from either extreme. 
So why not? Why not from poverty or why not from extreme wealth? And, and I'm going to throw this one back over to you, Jesse. So what would you, you say? Let's put you, uh, you're, you're the um, instructor now. Why not um, from either extreme poverty or extreme wealth? Extreme poverty robs you of your opportunity. Right. Yeah. I, that's what I, I mean. Right. Th- that at least is what I would say. I would agree. Right. And what about extreme, extreme wealth? wealth? robs you of your need. So if you have need, you might have some pressure on you. You might have some pressure to perform in terms of an economic condition. You might not have all of the opportunities that you would like and you're going to go get them. You're not hungry. Maybe you haven't failed. You never, you won't have to fail economically. You won't have to rise up from your bootstraps. You won't have to demonstrate perseverance, as Angela Duckworth would rightly say. You wouldn't have to demonstrate grit. So you're bereft of the, in, a, in an odd way, of some opportunities. Right. Uh, so, so it, maybe you're you're lucky if you're born in the middle uh, of of things. Here's another thing of, uh, that I've always thought about luck. You can make your own luck with regard to genius and, and success. And I've discovered this about the geniuses. I wasn't expecting to discover this. That they move. Geniuses are not static. They move to one of two places. They move to universities, or more likely, they move to metropolitan areas. Now, how this is going to play out under the present terms of the coronavirus here remains to be seen, because this has all been blown out of the water. But historically, that's what they have done. No genius has ever really done anything other than to go to where these centers of excellence are, because that's where the ideas are, that's where the cross-currents are, that's where the competition is, that's where the opportunities are, both economically and artistically or scientifically. And I'm sure with your experience, you've written a lot about Silicon Valley, there's there's an agglomeration happening happens and it builds upon itself and it feeds upon itself. Thoughts about that in Silicon Valley? Well, that is certainly true. But at the same time, it's also true that a place can't make you into a genius any more than the right set of relationships or the right amount of venture capital can make you into a genius. Right. So what, what we come away with here is there are a lot of things in the mix. There's luck in the mix. There's opportunity in the mix. There's genetic factors in the mix. And, but there's, I, not yeah. to interrupt you, Craig, but no, there's, no, no. there's one other thing that we have to touch on that we yeah. haven't touched on enough, which is that work is really important here. And going back to your ice skater, yeah. your figure skater, mm-hmm. I mean, he credited work with hard work with a large margin of the success. And you talk about that in the book, how the people who are geniuses, it's not even that they understand it as work. It's like you can't differentiate the act of the genius from the act of personhood. So I just would love to hear you talk on that. Well, it's the secret to life. It's the secret to staying alive. What is going to allow you to live at least a decade longer if you find your passion? And it's got to be a passion that keeps you alive, that drives you throughout your entire life, but you cannot possibly accomplish. Because once you accomplish it, then you're no longer driven. And you never, no longer want to get up in the morning and continue to obsess over the things. And if you do a statistical analysis of the age at which particular people in particular fields die and the ranks within that field, they live a decade longer. It's because they're optimists. They think they're going to accomplish this. There's a 
recent Boston University Harvard study that shows that optimists live 10 years longer. And this is also uh, concurs exactly with, with my own data on this. They live a decade longer than pessimists do because they think they can change the world. They think they can impact the world. They think they can, they, they can get it done. Let's go back to you, Jesse, to the issue of work here. It's very important. And your point is well taken that, that is, whether you call it work or your, whether you call it your life passion, it takes us almost a lifetime to find that. I really think when I start adding them up, the number of people discussed in my book is about 100. Um, some I've studied intensely, some just peripherally. Um, that they all have a routine for work. They all have a habit, hidden habits of genius. Well, one of the habits they have is the habit of work. And as you were saying, it's not work as they perceive it. It's just their obsession. They, they, so they get to work, but they all do it in a highly regimented way. They all have a pattern for work. Let's see, uh, it was called A Habit by Vladimir Nabokov and Shel Silverstein. Uh, Leo Tolstoy and John Updike called it a routine. Isaac Asimov, uh, Yayoi Kusama and Stephen King, they call it a schedule. Andy Warhol called it a rut. Confucius Twyla Tharp, she called it a ritual. They all have a ritual. It's the same thing every day. Sometimes it gets a little bit weird. Uh, Winston Churchill used to take two baths every day. Who in the world would take two baths every day? Well, probably relaxing, maybe he thinks, but, but he would call in, he would always call in his typist, and there he would sit in the buff, taking a bath, and dictate to his secretary. It was just he was getting his work done. Um, Igor Stravinsky and the Nobel Prize winner Saul Bellow, the author, they used to go out, if they were lacking for inspiration, stand on their heads for a period of time, just to maybe to get the blood flow uh, going. And we could go on and on and on through the idiosyncrasies of these people, but they are all consistently idiosyncratic. Mm. The question is why, I suppose. It, it, it saves time. <laughs> It saves time. They don't waste time. These geniuses, and I suspect to some degree successful people too, they don't waste a lot of time. And you can think about that a lot as how I structure my office. What do I allow in and what do I not allow in? What do I keep here as inspirations? I look up on the wall, some family pictures, some of my own heroes, some of my own awards to say, yeah, you can do this. Yeah, that time piece. I think what you're getting at there is Getting into the flow of the work as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's it. I hadn't really thought of it, but you're right. Because there's a wonderful passage uh, by Louisa May Alcott uh, in Little Women uh, when she talks about getting into the flow. And she goes in for weeks on end and it just the ideas just come and she's in that zone and she can't break it for anything except, except you won't believe this, to go for a run. Can you imagine a woman author in the 19th century in New England suddenly breaking out the door and racing for two, running for two miles or something? What <laughs> women, the woman did this? But, but that, there's another part of this. This is where you get your ideas, you're relaxed, and, you, and these, the juices are flowing, and they'll continue to flow when you have this regular heartbeat and regular pattern going in. So you get in the flow. Um, and what you said, Jesse, I think is correct. The sooner you can get in that flow, the better. Yeah. Oh, this is all incredibly interesting and, and helpful, too, to those of us who are thinking about how to best cultivate the genius we have inside, however large or small it actually is. 
Anything else you would leave us with? I'd like to, because I loved having children. I love having grandchildren. It is so great. Okay, here's so here's what you out there, whether you're a parent or thinking about a parent, you're probably you may well be in your 30s, 40s, something like that, and you're dealing with all all kinds of things. You don't have a lot of time to read. Here's what here are my takeaways with regard to raising children in particular. Don't obsess over their grades. Allow them to get to take a wide variety of courses and, and experiences. Don't have them front load when you're, uh, let's say, you want your kid to be just an ice skater or something like that. The chances of you being an Olympic ice skater is zero. So have them do many, many different types of things where, where they build up particular skills in a number of areas because that will allow you to connect different kinds of experiences and come up with new creative ideas. Give them time for quiet reflection. Read them a bedtime story, and this is something I stole from Stephen King. But then after you read them a story, have them tell you a story. Turn it around. Have them try to think of their own story. Do anything that will encourage their childlike imagination.